honored to be able to be with you today. Thank you. I just want to thank you for last week. The amount of food that we were able to take to the food consortium, which, which services about 79 different food pantries. We discovered that as we were there unloading. And uh, the lady that came representing them, she, she just kept trying to tell her husband and her son that were helping us unload. She goes, I, I cannot begin to describe, she said, the presence that was in that place. She goes, there was just, she goes, it's just a presence that was in that church. And, and I couldn't help but just smile knowing, isn't God good? Isn't he just good? The presence of the Lord that just transforms hearts. And so thank you for your generosity. Today I want to spend just a few minutes and kind of put a bow on a series that we have been uh, speaking about for the last eight weeks. The title of the message today is Ignite a Reaction. Ignite a Reaction. And the series that I've been speaking on is Seize the Moment. We've been, we've been talking about how we need to begin to step out in the power and the presence and obedience of the Lord and take advantage of opportunities that come our way. And, and I want to once again highlight the fact that I, I give so much credit for this to Erwin McManus and his book Chasing Daylight, which has given us so much content and direction for this, this series that we have been on. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you were with somebody that caused a situation that you got pulled right into their activity, even though you weren't expecting it? Any of you ever have any of that happen? A number of years ago, I was, my dad was serving in the world missions team for the Assemblies of God, and he was about to, to meet with all of the superintendents from the northwest region of, the, of our nation, and they were going to be having meetings in Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, he knew that some of the best fishing in the world is there, so he, he said, I'd love to fly you in. I was a youth pastor in Long Island. He said, I'd love to fly you in to spend a few days with me. He says, I'd like you to attend these meetings. And he says, and we'll, before it starts, we'll go fishing together on the Kenai River. That was not a hard sell for me. And so I said, absolutely. So I made my plans and used Dad's points and flew out to Alaska. And as I got there, uh, I arrived only to discover that he was weathered in in Missouri and was not going to be able to make the trip. So I'm, I'm there, and he was going to be a couple of days late. So he called one of his friends that was the superintendent of the Wyoming district who was there. His name was Pastor Savage. And he said, Pastor, would you, would you be willing, since we've already got this trip planned, would you be willing to go fishing with my son? So, so the day arrived, and uh, we met at the Kenai River. And the guide that was going to be taking us salmon fishing that day was about my age. And we get into the boat, and he was telling us all of the things that we could expect that day. And, and Pastor Savage starts this conversation with him and he just says hey tell me a little bit about what brought you here and so the young man begins to share the things that had got him to Alaska he was looking for a life of adventure and was just loving what he was doing and as he finished that chapter he says well tell me a little bit about what your plans are for the future and so he begins to launch into how he's working on an education and this is what he wants to do with his life and these are his goals you know two year five year ten year here's how much money he wants to make and then he asked him this question. He goes, well, then tell me after all the planning you've done to get here and all the planning you have for your future, tell me about your plans for eternity. And the young man stopped and turned around and stared at him and said, what? He said, tell me about your plans for eternity. Surely you haven't put this much planning into your life and not considered your eternity. Why don't tell me about your plans for eternity? And he said, I don't know what to say. And he looked at me. He goes, Doug, why don't you have a conversation with him and tell him about what he can do for eternity? And he picks up his pole and starts fishing. And I suddenly recognized that he had started a reaction, and I just got sucked right into it. And the reaction was that I got to spend some time with this young man explaining to him about the value of an eternity. For the past eight weeks, 
we have been unraveling an account of a father and a son, a king and a prince, King Saul and Prince Jonathan. And we've been looking at this particular passage from 1 Samuel chapter 14. And let me just quickly highlight uh, seven weeks of stuff that will lead us to where we're going today. According to Scripture, this army of Israel was outnumbered thousands to one by the Philistine army. And the Philistines had very strategically killed all of the blacksmiths in Israel so that they had no way of recreating weapons or making anything to defend themselves. And so Israel, with the hundreds of people they had left, had an arsenal of two swords left, one that belonged to the king and the other his son Jonathan. Faced with overwhelming odds of thousands to one in the middle of stress, King Saul related distress by climbing underneath a pomegranate tree to go to sleep, and his son Jonathan was laying one night, sleeping there, thinking about everything that could possibly go on, and felt this prompting that, you know what? God has promised us that if we enter into this battle that we're going to see victory. So in the middle of the night, he wakes up his young armor-bearer, who is never named, just given a title, and he says to him, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And by doing so, begins to step into an opportunity saying, Lord, I don't know what you're up to, but I want to give you the opportunity to do something. And so perhaps, as we act on your behalf, you will work on our behalf. And Jonathan and his father both were faced with the same minute. Jonathan steps into it and it becomes a moment that then created a great momentum. Because he decided to seize the moment, he gave himself fully to it and gave God an opportunity to show himself strong within that moment. His armor bearer told him to do what was ever on your mind to do because I am with you heart and soul. And we spoke about the influence that comes in each of our lives as we breathe in and breathe out what God desires of us to do. And as they stepped into this valley that was surrounded by cliffs on both sides, they knew that they were going to become vulnerable. And as they stepped out to be seen, shedding the cloak of camouflage to be seen by the enemy, they said, Lord, here's the deal. If the enemy tells us to come up to them, we will know that that is your sign that you have given us the victory. And if they tell us to stay where they are, then perhaps, Lord, we will face our death, but we'll do it with courage. And the Philistines saw them and taunted them and yelled at them, come on up here so we can teach you a lesson. And the whole energy changed in Jonathan as he recognized that this was the sign that they would climb up and that God would have given the Philistines into the hands of Israel. They climbed the cliffs, and after working hard to get to the place of the battle, it says that he and his armor-bearer killed 20 men in a period of about a, a half an acre in a very small place. What they didn't know at the time, however, was that, that they had just ignited a reaction that was about to kick in and start something that they had never seen coming. And this is where we join the story. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'm going to be reading verses 13 through 23. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp 
and the field, those in the outposts, and the raiding parties. The ground shook. In other words, God sent an earthquake. It was panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men that were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor-bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark. At that time, it was with the Israelites. And while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond, beyond Beth-Avon. Father, I pray that over these next few minutes, you will allow us to begin to pull together some of the details of what it means for us to seize moments, stepping into opportunities that you can show yourself strong in, so that we as the church and as individuals do not live powerless, useless lives, but we live in the full power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever been involved in a situation where you were facing doing something that you didn't think that you could do, but you ended up being able to do it, and at the end of it, you're standing going, I never thought that I could do that. Any of you ever been there? Most of you. There's some discoveries that we have to make about ourselves. Most of those discoveries don't come when we are doing the things that we always do the way that we always do them. Most of them require us to step into situations that are outside of our comfort zones. The Jonathans of our world have ways of creating those kind of environments. And so you follow them into a moment and you're full of apprehension and you're full of insecurity. You're certain that the only thing that's going to show up is your inadequacy and your inabilities. And then you discover at the same time everybody else does as you step into that moment that you were up to the challenge and you surprise yourself. The thing about those moments is that when we talk about them, we hate them because we don't like to be in places where we don't know if we're going to succeed or not. But when we live through those moments, those are the ones that we talk about the most because they become those exciting times where we saw something and we are able to do it that we never thought that we could do. So we come out of them when we love them, when we talk about those forever. It's this whole thing called potential. There is so much talk in our culture about potential because potential is the hint of greatness that is not yet developed. When you are young and somebody comes up to you and says, you have so much potential, it's a statement of praise. And we look at that thinking, boy, I hope someday that I can live up to whatever they see in me. And so we just, we look at people and say, you've got tons of potential. But when you are old and you never reached your potential, it becomes an assessment of lost opportunities. My fear is that the church of Jesus Christ in America... We'll have to look back on this church age 
and wonder if we did not take advantage of the potential of the power of God that he has made available to us and we never reached the potential because we never stepped out of the comfort zone that we had grown accustomed to. I believe that we must come to that place where we shift from believing that we have potential to the point where we become potent, where we actually do something with the potential that God has given to us. And we have discovered that making that transition is not all that easy. In fact, in my opinion, nobody moves from potential to maximum capacity without the help of others. What began for Jonathan as a personal quest culminated in an experience that became a national victory. He had no idea what was going to take place. He just knew that he was not going to sit back and just let defeat happen. He was going to enter into that moment and it turned everything around because of his moment of of seizing what God desired of him. But Jonathan had hinted that this victory could be great long before he started all of it. Remember when Jonathan and his armor bearer alone stepped into the valley to be seen and they took off the cloak of camouflage and said, we're going to let the enemy see us and we're going to be vulnerable and we're going to see what God is up to just so that we can hear what the Philistine warriors would say to us. Remember how he celebrated when they were taunted and challenged to come up and face their wrath because in verse 12, this is what Jonathan says that gives us a hint of what was going on. He said to his armor bearer, climb up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Now you look at that, and in that moment of time, it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Where was Israel? Israel was anywhere but there. There was no Israel lined up behind them. This was a battle that essentially he is standing in alone, just he and his youthful armor bearer. But even then, Jonathan understood that when you step into divine moments, it is not a battle that is about him. It was about the people of God. It was never a self-indulgent crusade. It was always about let's fulfill the purpose of God and see what God is up to because we're not going to let this moment slip by and just do nothing. The Lord was not delivering the Philistines into the hand of Jonathan. He was delivering them into the hands of Israel, and that is what thrilled Jonathan. It brought hope to his spirit. He was simply the first part in the works that God was about to accomplish. And when Jonathan seized that divine moment, he created a context that began to bring greatness out of others that were around him. And we find it in the description of the battle that there's at least three arenas where Jonathan's personal choice resulted in the transformation of others. If you have your bulletin, you can follow along with these points because the first is the faithful were unleashed. As we followed along in the story, it's been really fascinating for those of you that have spent any time in just looking at it through these past weeks because we've talked about Jonathan an awful lot and there's another man that's mentioned in this and it's one that is virtually ignored because his name is never mentioned. He's just known as the armor bearer. But as you look at this story, you'll recognize that from the beginning, the armor bearer was with him. He was with Jonathan. He was faithful from the start. And an honest assessment of this nameless companion 
would indicate to us that he may not have been very important to the cause until the battle began. The armor bearer, as we look at this, was likely a very young man, maybe even a teenager. He was inexperienced. He was untrained. There's a reason that his job, his sole job, was just to carry the armor. He probably was in the peak physical condition of his life, and he was very strong. And so he probably, as a strong young man, was hanging around Jonathan all the time, carrying all this stuff. In fact, today I'm looking at this thing. What would we associate an armor bearer today? He would basically be the water boy. Whatever you need, I'm here to get it for you. You get thirsty, I'll get you water. You know, I'm just, I'm here to help. I'm not very important in the conquest, but I'm just here for you. And so here he was, the only volunteer. He's working and walking along with Jonathan. And in some ways, as we look at the story, the courage that the water boy, the armor bearer, displayed in this could be even greater than Jonathan's. After all, Jonathan had a sword. And I would imagine that as he got to the top of the cliff and he gets up there, he turns around and helps the armor bearer up there and then says, now give me my sword and give me my armor. And he puts that on himself. And yet in the account, it tells us that the first attack of Jonathan and his armor bearer, they killed some 20 men in an area of about half, half an acre. And I begin to think about it, that Jonathan attacks and it says his armor bearer went behind him and killed them. So here's what probably happened. Jonathan gets up and he swings the sword, kills the first soldier of the Philistines, and the armor bearer suddenly picks up the sword of the dead soldier and instantly Israel's weaponry gained by one-third. And suddenly this armor bearer, who knew how to carry a sword but probably did not know how to use a sword, steps into the battle. And it's significant that the armor bearer is highlighted because he wasn't hiding behind Jonathan. He wasn't watching Jonathan go to war without any weaponry and with a clear disadvantage. This young apprentice, in a moment, because he was in the right place at the right time, stepping into this divine moment with Jonathan, became a warrior. And in that moment, his potential was translated from one of only hoping that he could do something to one of being potent. Because he was faithful. And without a doubt, this young armor bearer, for the rest of his life, would tell stories to, if he had kids and grandkids, I want to tell you about the time I became a warrior. I didn't know that I could do it. I was just following Jonathan, picked up a sword, and suddenly, in this moment of being faithful, God transformed me, and I became potent for him. Because I was walking with a Jonathan who knew how to seize divine moments. The armor bearer reminds us that half the battle of seizing divine moments is just being there and showing up. You see, faith is a big word that we use today. It's an exciting word. It's a dynamic word. It's a magnetic word. We talk about it all the time. Boy, I am living by faith, which just kind of gives this image that we are just out there in the front lines doing what we need to do. But listen to this. Faithful is an ordinary word. Sometimes faithful is considered dull and routine and bland. And I'm convinced most people would like to be known as people of faith, but they resist the tedious journey of just being faithful. It was the faithfulness of the armor bearer that increased his capacity to accomplish the task that was before him. 
He followed Jonathan into the battle as an armor bearer, but he walked out of that battle as a warrior because he was faithful to the things that he was called to do. The dimension of faith and courage that he demonstrated was amazing. And it's in the context of the demonstration of faithfulness that the armor bearer emerged, not just as an armor bearer, but he emerged as Jonathan's right hand when the battle began. When we choose to seize divine moments, we create an environment where others that are around us, that are walking with us, are unleashed to fulfill their God-given potential. When you say no to an opportunity, it's not just you that you're robbing, it's those that would be walking with you that could step into that moment and become potent with you that you are robbing because you said no. And Jonathan had no idea what God was going to do in this young armor bearer's life until he stepped into that moment. You see, we recognize that the Jonathans get their names in the book. The armor bearers are anonymous, but I don't want you to ever confuse anonymity with insignificance. Just because his name is never mentioned doesn't mean that he wasn't vital to the cause. Only heaven's records will reward him and accurately give to him everything that he deserved because he was faithful to step into a moment with somebody like Jonathan and say, you can count on me. The second group that was elevated in this are those that were the paralyzed ones in fear. The paralyzed are mobilized. It tells us that the armor bearer became a warrior, but it also informs us that Saul and all of his men assembled and went into battle. We find that Jonathan's, people that step into divine moments and seize them, not only created an environment where the faithful are unleashed, but they also, through their initiative, caused those that have been doing nothing to suddenly be mobilized. In 1 Samuel 14, verses 16 through 20, this is what it says. Saul's lookout at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the enemy, the enemy melting away. You know why there were lookouts? Because they did not know when they were going to get attacked. They were waiting to die. And the lookouts suddenly see everything change. And it says, Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces, see who has left us. And when they did, it was Jonathan and his armor-bearer who were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. And while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to battle. And they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. If you were to look at the history of this, when they brought the ark in, suddenly they decided, okay, God, we're going to seek you as to what your plan should be. And as the ark comes in, they, they begin to recognize that their time for prayer was over. The tumult was getting so great in the army, he goes, forget praying, we've just got to go. Sometimes we as the church, when faced with opportunities... Our fallback stance is, you know what, let's just pray about that a while. There's times to pray and there's times to go. And we need to know the difference between the two of those things. And it was this moment to go, and so we already know that Saul was not about to attack. He was never going to call the army to move forward. He was never going to engage the enemy. He had lost his heart, the army was apathetic, and they had lost their passion. It was only an earthquake that God sent to scare the enemy, the shaking of the ground and the commotion of the conflict that shook Saul out of his complacency. 
And then when they found out that the soldier who was missing was his son, this is what it made, and this is what it took for him to finally engage. As I've been studying this passage over these past several weeks, I, I like to ask what-if questions. Here's what I was wondering. I wonder if when they had mustered the forces, if it had been any other soldier that was missing, if it hadn't have been Jonathan, if it hadn't been the king's son, would Saul have done anything about it? If it had just been somebody else's son, if it had just been somebody else, what would have happened? But suddenly in this moment when they count the soldiers and discover it's his son, now for Saul it became personal. His son Jonathan was at war. His son Jonathan was leading. His son Jonathan was in danger. And the son of the king was doing what the king should have been doing. And the moment that Saul chose to advance really didn't show any improvement in the circumstances whatsoever of the dilemma that he had been in just a few moments ago. They still didn't have weapons. They still didn't have reinforcements. If anything, their ammunition had been reduced by 50% because his son was carrying his own sword and wasn't there. He knew that they had just lost their most fierce warrior who was not there with them any longer. And now the Philistines knew they were coming. So even if they were to attack, it couldn't be by surprise. The only thing that changed, that shook him out of his complacency, were the stakes had changed. Because for his son, Saul was willing to risk his life. And he was willing to risk the lives of his men. For his son, he was willing to go to war. If the rational thing to do was to avoid the conflict with the Philistines, engaging them at this particular time was absolutely insane. But he would do it now because his son was involved. You know, it's easy to be objective and rational when you're not personally involved. It's easy to sit back and have a full view of things when there's really no stake in the game that you have at that particular time. But Jonathan's action, by engaging and seizing the moment and stepping into it, fueled in Saul what had remained unignited up to that point in time. It's the same way for us. I believe that God has called his church to light some fuses. It's time for us to begin to ignite some things that brings into the passion of those who may have sat uninspired and apathetic. It's time for the church to stand up and recognize who in the world we are and whose we are and step into moments and allow those that have stood back for so long to engage and join us in those things. The stakes have changed. Our children's lives are in danger if we don't stand up and let the church be the church. Jonathan did not do this out of a cycle of self-indulgence. He gave his life away passionately because he believed that God was up to something and just needed the opportunity to show it. Many years ago when I was serving as the district youth director, there was a pastor of a very successful church in our network who had never given a penny to Speed the Light. And Speed the Light is the youth arm of missions that the youth raise money and it provides vehicles and equipment for our missionaries to actually do the work when they get on the field. And his church had never given a penny to speed the light, but one youth convention, his daughter got called to be a missionary. And as she finished college, she came back home and told her dad where she was going to be going. And so he called me on the phone and made an appointment, came in and sat down with me. And as he recognized that speed the light funds would be available for her to have a car, he said to me, he goes, hey, I need to know how soon it is that we can get a speed the light car for my daughter. And I said, here's what I'm going to do for you. I will match penny for penny 
every penny that your church has given for the last five years to go toward a speed the light vehicle for your daughter. And he shrunk, his head just sunk down. He goes, ah, you got me. Because I know that we've not supported Speed the Light. I will tell you something. It changed the day that his daughter became a missionary. He became a leader that suddenly became passionate about making sure that our missionaries were well supported. Their church stepped up and began to not only support missionaries in new ways, but also gave to Speed the Light. You see, something changed in him when his daughter entered the battle. It became personal for him, and suddenly a passion that had remained dead in his heart became something that was alive and well because the stakes were raised. We need to raise the stakes in our church as to what God is going to accomplish and be passionate about the things that God wants us to be passionate about. And then lastly, we see in this scripture that the prodigals returned. In verses 21 through 23, it says, Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel... And the battle moved on to Beth-Avon. If it were not difficult enough for Jonathan to have to work against the apathy of his father and the apathy of his father's army, can you imagine what it was like for him to climb that cliff and stand up there and begin to face the Philistines and suddenly look behind him and see in the camp's faces that he recognizes that used to be with him and his army, but because they thought that they were going to lose, changed sides. And suddenly Jonathan and his armor bearer get up there and they begin to win the war. And suddenly those who had gone to the Philistines out of self-preservation decided we're changing teams again. And now we're with you. You see, for some people, being on the right side is about doing what is right. But for other people, being on the right side means making sure that you're on the winning team. Regardless of the costs. We live in a culture that glamorizes winning regardless of character. You see, you can have a criminal record. You can live an unsavory and notorious life. But if you win the Super Bowl, you're a hero. You can be the best NBA players in the world and secretly meet and find ways to put together a team where it's just you. It doesn't matter what goes on the rest. It's all about winning for us. And so we'll make these plans. There were Israelites who were willing to war against the very purpose of God to ensure their personal success and their personal survival. And so they walked away from what they knew was right and they became enemies of the good. Yet in that moment, everything changed for them. When they see the power of an individual who was marked by God for a task step in and seize a moment... And realized that God is bigger than an army. And so they saw John and Saul battling the Philistines, facing insurmountable odds. And they saw the benefits of God being on their side. And suddenly they switched loyalties again and began to run with the children of whom their families belonged to. And the paralyzed were mobilized. And to the light, to the delight of God, those who had turned their backs on God came back home. I believe that we as a church, as we seize divine moments, frankly, we're already seeing it. 
There are those who have once known the grace of God, who have grown up in the house of the Lord, who have had the seeds of righteousness planted within them. For whatever reason, look at the church of today and say, that's not for me, because they've determined that God is just like us. And as a result of that, they have wandered into the enemy's camp because they think somehow that this will provide for their survival. You want to know when they're going to come home? When the church stands up in the power of God and begins to march into the enemy's camp and begin to declare the power of God and they see that our God is greater than anything that they have served and the prodigals will come marching back home and join the army of God again because that's what's been promised in the last day's outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say there was another group. They were hiding in the hills, paralyzed by their fear. And they crawled out of their holes and out of the caves where they had been hiding, just hoping to not be seen. And suddenly when the armies of God began to make a push, they stepped up and they stepped in and they began to join the armies as well. I've thought about that. How wonderful it is for those that had been hiding in fear to finally join an army and see what God is up to. But here's the thing for them. Their character will never have been shaped by the battle. The things that they went through were joining what was already being taken place. It will be those that stepped out in faith that will have their character molded by what it means to seize a moment. Not saying that they're not in heaven, but I'm going to say their reward is going to be different. There is a reward that God holds for those that are faithful to stand up and say, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Here I am, Lord. Use me. I believe that those that were crawling out of the holes and out of the caves represent well to us those who are emotionally and spiritually broken and they're unable to live a life of freedom and adventure. But in this situation, they were hiding, living like animals, paralyzed by fear, until one person stepped into a divine moment and let God unleash his power and everything changed. Oh God, would you let grace assembly, would you let your church stand up and seize a moment so that those that have been paralyzed in fear can join in and see the power of God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come this morning. And we're going to sing that song that I said at the beginning. It's almost become an anthem for me. I've sang it so many times as we've traveled. I want you to stand with me this morning, if you would, please, because we're going to have a call today, and we're going to sing a song in victory today that is going to allow us to understand that He is a waymaker. But you know what? He never opens the way until you're ready to walk. He doesn't open a way when you're sitting. He doesn't open a way when you're sitting back there wondering what God's going to do. He opens the way for those that step up and begin to march and say, Here I am, Lord. Where do you want me to go? What door do you want me to knock on? How do you want to accomplish these things? Then he becomes a way maker. Then he becomes a miracle worker. Oh, what a mighty God we serve today. It's time for the church to stand up and say, Give me a moment, Lord. Give me an opportunity that I can seize it for your glory's sake. 